Well, we look this evening to Article 29 in our Belgian Confession of Faith. You can find that on pages 83 and 4 in the back of your Psalter hymnal. But I'd like to read with you first from 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 4, where we find Paul's counsel to Timothy, the young pastor, concerning the work he is called to do in the church. And this gives us a kind of an insight into some of what we're going to read in Article 29. Notice the emphasis on how the leaders of the church are called to stand firm and to lead the church to stand firm on God's Word, on the truth, despite what the culture around them says, despite what happens in the world all around us. We are called to lead the church in, our, in serving our King. So he says, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 3, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Amen. Now along that line, as we consider the calling of the church, Article 29, now remember we have looked at in Article 27 and Article 28 of the nature of the church. What is the church Catholic that is found in every land? And what is the church locally that we see and our calling with regard to joining that church? Well now we come to Article 29. And we confess there that we believe that we ought diligently and circumspectly to discern from the Word of God which is the true church, since all sects which are in the world assume to themselves the name of the church. But we speak not here of hypocrites who are mixed in the church with the good, yet are not of the church, though externally in it. But we say that the body and communion of the true church must be distinguished from all sects that call themselves the church. The marks by which the true church are known there is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if it maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as administered by, or as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin, in short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, 
All things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church. Hereby the true church may certainly be known, from which no man has a right to separate himself. With respect to those who are members of the church, they may be known by the marks of Christians, namely by faith, And when having received Jesus Christ, the only Savior, they avoid sin, follow after righteousness, love the true God and their neighbor, neither turn aside to the right or left, and crucify the flesh with the works thereof. But this is not to be understood as if there did not remain in them great infirmities, but they fight against them through the Spirit all the days of their life, continually taking their refuge in the blood, death, passion, and obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom they have remission of sins through faith in Him. As for the false church, it ascribes more power and authority to itself and its ordinances than to the Word of God, and it will not submit itself to the yoke of Christ." Neither does it administer the sacraments as appointed by Christ in his word, but adds to and takes from them as it thinks proper. It relies more upon men than upon Christ, and it persecutes those who live holily according to the word of God and rebuke it for its errors, covetousness, and idolatry. These two churches are easily known and distinguished from each other. Amen. Beloved church of our Lord Jesus Christ, the joke is told about a reformed man who tried to sail around the world but got shipwrecked and ended up on an uninhabited island. Recognizing that he was off the major trade routes, he settled in and used the gifts God had given him. He found shelter and food, a good source of clean water, As time went on, he began refining what he had. He built a bigger garden. He found a a better shelter he built for himself. And then finally the day arrived when a, a boat arrived. Someone had found him. The day of his rescue had arrived. He was ecstatic to return to civilization. But the captain of the boat that had found him said, before we leave, I'd really like a tour of what you've done, how you've survived. And so he showed him His crops, his home, his storage vessels, his fishing nets, even the little street that he had carved out of the wilderness for himself. Impressed, the captain said, Oh, that's that's wonderful. But what are these two these two structures over here? And he said, Oh, this one is my church where I go to worship the Lord. And he said, Oh, what's that other one? He said, Well, that's the church I used to go to. It's kind of a double edged sword, sort of an apocryphal story, right? The idea being that us Reformed people, we can't even be on an abandoned island without having a church that we don't like, that we don't approve of. That kind of hurts. And that's the stereotype. And there may be some truth to that criticism that sometimes we're a little overly critical. But there's good reason why we should be, if not critical... At least those who pay careful attention to the church and discern carefully the nature of the church where we worship. Because as our confession shows us, there are many out there, many organizations, many groups that call themselves the church. Every sect calls itself the church. When the, the cults come knocking on your door, they say, we're from the church. And that's a lie. And that means that we must learn to be discerning 
And there's no sin in that. In fact, there is sin in refusing to discern. There is sin in simply accepting at face value every claim to be the church. And what we learn from Article 29 is that it is not at heart really all that difficult to discern what is the true church where we ought to be, where we can be fed and grown and matured. It's really not that terribly difficult to discern if we're willing to do the work of evaluating the group that stands before us. And it matters. Children, young people, please understand, it matters where we go to church, what group we gather with. Because how that group teaches that we ought to relate to God, how that group teaches that we ought to order our lives, how they live and act and speak in their day-to-day life, that's how we will become, for better or worse. And so it's imperative that we learn from those who love God, from those who truly serve Christ as their King. And so Article 29 teaches us to confess the visibility, the ability to be seen of the church where Christ is King. We confess the visibility of the church where Christ is King. And that begins by seeing how it is identified by essential marks. It is identified by essential marks. That's our first point. The emphasis of this whole article, you understand, is that we as God's people can and must distinguish the true church from those that are false. And that is implicitly a condemnation of those who are indifferent toward the church. The church is the body of Christ. It's the bride of Christ. It's that chosen nation of priests unto God. And yet John tells us in 1 John 4 that many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are many who claim to be of Christ but are not. The, uh, the author Daniel Defoe once wrote, wherever God erects a house of prayer, the devil always builds a chapel there. And it will be found upon examination that the latter has the largest congregation. And there's a lot of truth in that. The devil is the great imitator. He wants us He wants all people to gather in a place where their conscience will be soothed, where they think everything is fine and good, and where they are lulled to sleep without hearing the claims of our King, without hearing the Word of God that should order our life. And so there are many places we can go where we won't hear this Word, where the the double-edged sword of God's Word will not slice into us and cut away all that is dead and bad and, and broken. And so this article calls us, and God's Word calls us, to diligently and carefully discern the true church. Diligently. We need to take it up with zeal. This isn't something we should do reluctantly or apologetically. We should be eager to find the true gathering of God's people where we can be joined. And and we should be confident That if we examine, and when we examine, not if, when we examine the church of which we are a part, that we will find that it is standing firm. And if it is not, then we need to to work to make sure that it is. Or we need to be where, where it is. So this is an important, this is an essential task. But understand what this calling is not. This is not a calling to find the perfect church. 
Because we know exactly where the perfect church is. It's in heaven. That's where God's people have been cleansed of their sin, where they've been utterly perfected. And until we end up in heaven, every church of which we might be a part is going to be imperfect because it's filled with sinners. It's filled with with folks who still see dimly. And this is not a calling to find the, the pure church because in each place where Christ's wheat grows, some of the tares grow alongside of it. In every assembly of the Lord's sheep, there are going to be a few wolves prowling around the edges. So understand that, first of all. We're not looking for the perfect church or for the pure church because we can only find that in heaven. Nor are we seeking to judge denominations of churches because denominations aren't the church. They're federations of churches. They help us to understand the nature of the churches that belong to them. But we're called to look at the individual congregation that gathers in the Lord's name every week. That's the church we are called to judge. Paul tells Timothy, You have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. And that's what every church should be able to declare of itself. You have seen my doctrine, my teaching, my life, what we do, how we are. Paul put that out there boldly. He said, you've seen what I'm like and what the Lord has done in me. Judge by what you've seen. And that's what we're called to do with regard to the church. Judge by what we have seen. Judge by what we're able to discern. Not so that we can feel superior. Not so that we can disdain those that fall short. But so that we can know where we must be. Because if we are of Christ, then we must be part of that body where Christ is the head. We must be part of that building that Christ inhabits as his temple. And that means some real work. Children, young people, understand how important this is. Should the Lord lead you to a college in another place or someday call you perhaps to a job in another place? Or maybe He leads you to that special someone and they live somewhere else. And you have to figure out, first of all, whether you're called to go there and secondly, if you're called to go there, where you're called to be. You have to do the hard work of looking at the churches in that place to see if there's even a true church there. Because let me tell you right now, if there's not, you're not called to be there. You're not called to compromise in your worship of God, in your discipleship, just for that perfect job. Because it's not perfect if God's people aren't there. And if there is a true church there, then you have to make sure that you know which one it is. So that you can be part of it. So how do you do that? Well, you do the hard work of going there and seeing what they teach and what they believe and how they live and whether they're seeking to live according to God's Word. You see, that's, that's really the, the one basis for judgment. That's the one standard that we're called to judge. Are they seeking to do all things according to God's Word and to reject that which is contrary to it? That's really the ultimate goal that the church ought to have, that they're holding firm to God's Word. What did, what did Paul emphasize here? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, what we believe, 
for reproof, turning us away from what is wrong, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The implication is if we don't have the word of God, we won't be complete. We won't be equipped. We will fall short. This is the word which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so that word must stand as the bedrock foundation of the church. And if it does not, you don't need to be there. And that sounds like a no-brainer. Surely everything that calls itself the church has that standard, but they don't. They have tradition. They have psychoanalysis. They have great men whom they follow. They have an earnest desire to have many people joining them and to have a, a, a social group that's with it and that's really encouraging and that's really filled with joy, but they don't have God's Word at the heart. And if you want to know whether they're really seeking to follow the Word of God, to put that first, then you have to look for those three marks. First of all, are they preaching the pure doctrine of Christ? That sounds like a no-brainer. But... Time and again, you walk into places and you will find not a sermon, but a self-help seminar. Not a sermon, but a, a lecture on some point of history. Not a sermon, but some video clips and some stuff that makes you feel happy. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, but it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The Jews request a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, there must be the faithful preaching of the word. And not just a one-hit wonder, not just a, a sermon that gets recycled every week or a bully pulpit that just hits three or four different issues time and time again. No, it must be the full counsel of God's Word that talks about how we're sinful and also how we're saved, that tells us how we need to turn from our sin but also how we can have joy in Christ, that talks to us about our worship but also about our work about our devotional life, but also about our families. The pure preaching of the gospel must be there. That's why God commanded Timothy through Paul, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, whether the people are listening or sleeping, whether there's a multitude or just a few people populating the place. God's word must be proclaimed faithfully, this first of all. And with it, it must maintain the sacraments as instituted by Christ. Now, of course, the Roman Catholic Church has added five additional sacraments beyond what God commanded. Other churches technically have baptism in the Lord's Supper, but they so underemphasize them that they might as well have none. But beloved, God gave these sacraments as signs and seals that we need to nourish and build us up. He wants His people to see the reality of the gospel. He wants us to feel and taste and touch the reality of what Christ has done for us. And He wants us to so respect those sacraments 
that we don't alter and change them as we will, that we don't take them lightly, but that we guard those sacraments, ensuring that the people understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, and that, that no one partakes without understanding unto their own condemnation. To fail in that is to deeply disrespect God and His Word. So we must have the faithful exercise of the sacraments, and then church discipline must be exercised in the punishing of sin. This is truly neglected today. But God has commanded that discipline be exercised in the punishing of sin so that we as a church might understand that sin hurts. If sin didn't hurt, Jesus wouldn't have had to die on an accursed cross. And so when, when those who are among God's people embrace sin, they must be disciplined for three reasons. First of all, so that they themselves can see the cost of sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, concerning a man who was engaged in sin, who was living in his sin, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Cast him out of the church. Let him go and, and imbibe in that sin so that he can see its ugliness. And though it might destroy him physically, maybe it will turn him back in repentance to the Lord. But don't tolerate him in your midst. Don't let him think that everything's fine while he's living a life of rebellion against the Lord. So first of all, for the sake of the sinner, that he might be taught that his sin has separated him from Christ and his grace. Also, for the sake of the people of the church. When we see church discipline, we realize how serious sin is. It has separated one of our brothers or one of our sisters from the Lord. It has, it has taken them away from that path of safety. And so when we're tempted to take up that sin, we're sobered. We recognize how, how terrible that is. And also for the, the sake of the church, for its witness, so that the world might see that we take sin seriously. So these three marks we must seek. Is the word preached faithfully? Are the sacraments exercised purely? Is discipline exercised in response to sin? Together, these answer that truly crucial question, is Christ the King of this congregation? Do we seek to do what He commands and to reject what He despises? Do we exalt someone else as our authority or is Christ the only one on the throne? Does this church bow to Christ? Children, Young people, that's the question you must ask. Are they worshiping in a way that shows that they're serving God according to His Word alone? Or are they seeking in what they do to follow the trends of men? To seek to fulfill the desires of men? Are they following God's Word? And look to at the people. The church is not a an academic thing that's just out there. No, the church is the people who gather. This building isn't the church. The people who gather here are the church. And so if the church is faithful, if the church is a true church, then its people will bear the marks of Christians. That's the second point. I know we're getting toward the end of our time. These last two points are, are brief but important. The true church advertises that it's the true church by its faithful members. What do the members of the true church look like? Well, the confession gives us five marks. And I want to highlight one. They love the true God and their neighbor. John wrote in 1 John 4, 
We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not, who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. If we love God, if we truly belong to him, we're going to love our neighbor. And that means that we're going to work through our differences and we're going to be there for one another when there's hard times. When someone's suffering, we're all going to gather around them. When someone repents of their sin, we're all going to gather to restore them. When someone disappears, we're all going to go seek them. And if we're not doing that, we're not showing the love of Christ. And we need to repent. We need to turn back. And let's be honest, that's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. Especially in a culture that prizes letting everybody just do what feels right to them. And not meddling with other people. But you know what? We're not meddling. We're loving. And we need to love one another. If we're really Christians, if we've been loved by Christ, then we're going to love one another. We're going to send notes of encouragement to each other. We're going to have each other in one another's homes. We're going to get to know one another. We're going to pray for one another, just as we saw this morning from 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to love our neighbor, and we're going to love God. This is the love of God, says 1 John 5, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome, for whoever is born of God overcomes the world. We're going to start following after Him. Which means, as our confession tells us, we avoid sin. We follow after righteousness. Now, we don't do that perfectly. We're still works in progress. But increasingly, we're going to live a life of repentance, a life of discipleship, a life of striving after holiness. Young people, that means that you're going to look at these men who are older than you, these women who are older than you, and you're going to, you're going to try to follow their example. You're going to try to live the way that they live and you're going to ask for their advice and their counsel and their guidance because they've been where you are and they know how to get past those temptations, how to get past those hard times. And we're going to be steadfast about following that path of discipleship, neither turning to the right nor to the left, says our confession. In other words, we're not going to be Christians on Sunday. We're not going to dress up and clean up real nice to come to worship. And then on Monday, we're swearing along with everybody else on the job site. And we're drinking just as hard as anybody else after work. And we're watching the same kinds of entertainment and engaging in the same thought processes. No, no, no. God's people are the church seven days a week. And that means when we go forth from here, we bear the image of Christ wherever we go. Which means crucifying the flesh and the works thereof, says the, the catechism or the confession. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The cross is an instrument of death, slow death. And God's people have that cross. Destroying their old nature. Destroying their old man. And we should be able to see that. That means that we won't see a congregation of perfect people. They're not. They're sinners. But we're going to see people that are increasingly getting better. Their marriage was in a tough place, but they're, they're working at it. And they're getting counseling, and they're growing stronger together. They were having a real struggle with this child of theirs, but they're learning how to, to help him and build him and disciple him together. 
There was a rift between two families, but they've, they've worked it out, and now they're dining together. That's the mark of the true church. As God's people seek to live according to His Word, as they seek to show the love of Christ, as they seek to apply the Word of God in a way that destroys their old sin nature. You know why we have to consider that? It's because we're the church. We are the advertisement of what this church is. When people walk in here and they see us, do they see those who love the Lord, those who are seeking to submit to Christ, those who acknowledge Christ as their only king? Because that's the mark they're going to see. And when you invite your neighbor to church, which you should do, are they going to say, yeah, I should go where he goes? Because I want to be like that. Or are they going to say, well, wherever he goes, that's where I don't want to be. Because I don't want to be like that. What do they see in you? Do they see that Christ is your king? Do they see the reflection of your Savior in you? That's our calling. And also, children, young people, when you go to that other church, maybe you go to college and you see that there's a variety of churches that your friends and your classmates are going to. And when you go to those churches, you need to ask, what kind of people are these? Plenty of places you'll find friendly people, you'll find fun-loving people, you'll find even some welcoming people. But will you find Christ-like people? People who seek to love God and love their neighbor as themselves. Will you find those who are seeking to put to death the old man and to see Christ come to life in them? Will you see those who are knit together by the love of God and the Holy Spirit? That's the true church. That's where you need to be. But not in the place of the false church. We're, we're just going to touch on this, but it's so important. The true church is emphasized by worldly counterfeits. Now just to be clear, the true church is not perfect or pure. We said that. And neither is the false church completely corrupt in this world. Even those churches that tolerate all sorts of depravity and know nothing of discipline will sometimes hear the gospel. Even the churches that are so doctrinally blind that their minister openly questions whether the, the Bible is true will have true believers in its midst. So we need to recognize there's great variation in degrees. Among the true churches, there are some that are extremely faithful and some that are kind of teetering. They're struggling. And among the false, not all are wicked. Many are just lukewarm or misled or deceived. So we mustn't look down on them. We mustn't think ourselves superior to those congregations that lack the marks of the true church. They've been deceived. They've been led astray. And we should desire that they turn back. So understand that. Our call, we have a calling toward them. Our calling toward them is to pray for them and to love them and to encourage them and to seek to lead them member by member, if need be, back to the truth. But we need to know who they are. And we can see that they're the false church by one sign. Just as the true church, we can see by that one sign that they follow after Christ as their king, that they follow his word. So the false church relies more upon men than upon Christ. Eight words. It relies more upon men than upon Christ. 
And that's so dangerous. The way they do it is infinitely varied. Some turn God's grace into a license for immorality. All they hear is God is love, God is love, God is love, and so do whatever you want. If it feels right, it can't be wrong. God made you that way, so go for it. Others, they subject their interpretation of Scripture to the world, to the world's culture, to the world's science. And so whatever the the Bible says that contradicts what the world says, they, they believe the world rather than the Bible, and they accommodate themselves or accommodate the Bible to the world. That's poison. Others focus on foolish quarrels, the theological tempests in a teapot, and they make that the... The, the measure of all that is right and true and good. And, and they isolate themselves from the church. Others become so enamored of wealth and applause that they'll do anything to get worldly treasure. Folks, that's the reality now in so very many, the vast majority of that which calls itself the church in our land. And that should be absolutely no surprise to us. Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And then he says, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And that is just as true today, if not more so, than it was when Paul wrote it. They want to hear what will make them feel comfortable in the sin that they've chosen. And you can find multitudes enjoying that kind of quote-unquote church. They fill entire stadiums in order to hear that you can have your best life now. You can have anything that you desire. You can have... You can have your cake and eat it too. You can do what you feel like doing. You don't have to give up anything. You don't have to quit anything. You don't have to change. And God's just fine with you. And we can't approve of that. We certainly mustn't approve of that by taking part in it. But we also need to remember what 2 John 9 says. 2 John 9 and following says... Oops. It doesn't say whoops. I just had the wrong place. Second John 9 and following says, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. We must not share in their evil deeds. We must not give approval to what they do. But we must love them, recognizing that they've been deceived. So we need to recognize that when they're putting something on the throne beside Christ or instead of Christ, we need to recognize that. We need to not take part in their worship. But we do need to love them. We need to befriend them. We need to call them back to faithfulness. Because quite honestly, many of them have never heard the faithful preaching of the Word. Many of them have never seen the sacraments exercised faithfully. Many of them have no idea what church discipline even is. So love them, befriend them, show them there's something different, but do not take part in their sin. Beloved, God calls His church to submit in all things 
to Christ as its king. So let us pray that God would allow us always to do that. And when we fall short, because at times we will, let us pray that God would give us the discernment to recognize that and to repent. And let us pray that God would always give us discernment, every one of us, young and old, to recognize the true church. Praying for, leading for those who are not of the true church. But refusing to be united to any who are not of the true church. And may God be glorified as He thus leads us. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we thank You. We thank You that You have given us Your Word and that You have called us to submit ourselves to Christ as our King. Lord, You know know the temptations that surround us. The temptations to get along, to follow the world, to to tolerate and approve of that which is contrary to what You have commanded. Father, we pray that You would strengthen us. That You would strengthen every one of us. That none of us would be satisfied to, uh, to tolerate having anyone on the throne but Christ. And teach us to to make that judgment in a way that's loving. Seeking to lead those who are caught in error out of their error and into the the light of the truth. Father, we pray that You would preserve and protect Your church here at Covenant and throughout the world. That when Satan comes and asks, "Has, has God really said that we would answer with a resounding yes and that we would defend Your Word and that we would cast Satan far from us. And Father, we ask this all in the name of Christ who alone is able to hold us firm. Amen.